Hello, welcome again to the Rethink Energy podcast. Uh, the Rethink team's here. We're going to talk about technology behind this week's energy news. I'm CEO Peter White. I've got the editor Bogdan Evermuta. Hello, everybody. Uh, we've got solar analyst Andres Fontenot. Hello. And our battery analyst Connor Watts. Hello. We're going to talk about the stories we wrote in uh, last night's issue. Um, if you don't have access to last night's issue, go to uh, rethinkresearch.biz and click on energy and you should be reading reading it. If you don't have a password, you'll only get the first six lines of each story. If you want a password, email Roz, R-O-Z, at rethinkresearch.biz and she can sort that out. And this week, we're going to talk about how wind PPAs in the States are being index-linked to protect against inflation. We're also going to get a report on where deep-sea mining is headed. Is is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? And we discover that there's a 40-gigawatt stockpile of solar modules in Europe. How does that work? Uh, Finally, I'm going to ask one or two questions about the short items in the issue that we published last night. First, Bogdan, you attended a wind conference in Boston where they talked up index-linked PPAs. Yes, that's true. That was the, the main talk of the conference was uh, indexing PPAs. So to give a bit of a context, we just put out a bit of a, a long article which reviews the state of the wind industry for the first half of 2023. And in it, I'm mentioning PPA indexing. So um, essentially, power purchasing agreements, they're the tool that um, uh, farm developers used to uh, sell the electricity generated by wind turbines. And we all know that those have skyrocketed because of supply chain issues in the past uh, past year or two. And essentially what the counter strategy of the industry looks set to be is uh, indexing those contracts. And that essentially means when you sign a contract, you kind of allow a window for the PPA, so the actual value of dollar per megawatt hour that you're going to sign the contract of, you allow a window for that to go up and down according, directly linked to to your supply chain. So if, say, a part of your supply chain goes up by X percent, then your um, what, PPA... What, why would I buy electricity indexed to your supply chain? Surely I'd want to buy electricity indexed to my uh, inflation rate. Yeah, that's another that's another option. There's a few different... You can index the PPA to different things. Um, one of them is... Um, I think it's called wholesale energy market index. It's the type of indexation that takes into account inflation. Now, now I've never seen one of these contracts, but it strikes me that they're, they're very naive if they don't already have that in. Legal hmm. professionals are pretty good at this stuff, and they've done it from other, other walks of life. And, and there have been various stumbles uh, in, in history for different types of contracts. And they should be aware of all this, surely. Yes, I mean, they are. And I'm pretty sure some of the wind farms out there in the world have PPA, uh, were built based on, a, on an indexation of a PPA. Um, but certainly none of the big ones that, especially the US East Coast ones uh, around Massachusetts and New York that um, had the troubles with the PPAs uh, last year and eventually pretty sure got cancelled. But, but it still doesn't give you an answer to this problem. Uh, let's say your supply chain is based 
in some other part of the world, let's say Latin America or something, and and yeah. and you and, and they have raging inflation and your prices go up, but in the United States you don't have raging inflation and your wholesale price doesn't move much either. You know, these depending on which one you pick you're going to either be contradicting one another or moving in different directions, right. or, or there's going to be a conflict. Uh, I mean, presumably, you have conflict resolution uh, paragraphs in there which take one or the other into account under different conditions. Yes, they tend to be quite complex, and obviously it's, a, it's not one solution fits all type contract. <clears throat> okay. I mean, that's, that's a good reason to build your supply chain as close to, to you as possible. I mean, if you're in North America, you should use North American steel. Um, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you're in North America, you should move your plants to manufacture um, the rotors um, to, to America. So you're indexed to their labor. And that way, you should be protected against most things. Yeah, and the IRA is promoting that. Uh, not just for wind, for a lot of industries. Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, anything else that came out of the show? Well, that was the main thing. Everything else is, you know, still banging the drum of how much we need wind, which we all know. <laughs> we do. Uh, was there much to do with the wind supply chain at the show? Not specifically. Not specifically. No. Uh, there were a few, a few people um, in charge of their own kind of supply chain, so... Uh, project developing uh, company said their supply chain manager or whatever director attend um, and there was obviously a, a topic that came out here and there but there wasn't anything specific um, about locations or uh, costs or or things like that okay all right so um, I mean this is really the, the United States playing catch up with rules and regulations, which China and Europe have already solved. Great to see they're doing it. Um, should have got around to it sooner. I mean, it, it's always the, the same way in the energy industry. They assume that prices can't change. We've talked to some friends in the mining community. There is no intrinsic value to any item on the planet. If demand for it changes, um, then, then price changes. Uh, if supply for it changes, then price changes. There is no set hierarchy of values, and everyone everyone should be aware of that in a global marketplace. And um, let's move on. Deep sea mining. Well, we're going to go to the bottom of the sea and start mining. Is this going to make uh, supp uh, supply chain issues uh, reduce, Connor, or, or is this going to make something worse? It, well, uh, it very much depends who you ask, but the broad consensus is that it will make a lot of things worse and we don't entirely know how. So this last month was the deadline for the International Seabed Authority to formalize some rules and regulations around mining over the seabed and specifically for the company in question that triggered the clause in the regulation forcing it to decide on this two years ago, the metals company, the harvesting of polymetallic nodules in the carrying Clipperton zone, which is an area of the Pacific Ocean that's littered with the bloody things. Littered with what? Which material? Polymetallic nodules are primarily manganese, cobalt, and nickel. It's like someone left the mine there for us to pick up. If picking it up released a bunch of sediment that would 
heavily disrupts the marine ecology of where we don't understand. Yeah, well, the world's got a, a, a history of uh, ignoring um, small creatures and uh, ecologies in favour of mining. So uh, I'm not too optimistic that we're going to be able to stop this. Well, thankfully, at least at the moment, the ISA has formalised a two-year further moratorium on the putting in place of these regulations. So any companies behind a UN-backed body will not be mining the seafloor until those regulations are in place. Who uh, is the International Seabed Authority and who, who said it was in charge? The International Seabed Authority is a UN-backed organisation and it has 169 members. So it, that's pretty much everybody in Europe, a few in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia. Lots of small island states as well. So, so it's, it's basically countries which don't have any sea and, and Europe. And so it's Europe as usual, acting as the world's policeman. It's companies with a lot of sea, actually. Okay. So well, I thought lots you meant of Middle small East. Yeah. island nations. Yeah. The main proponents of deep sea mining will say it's lower carbon than on land mining because you're not cutting down any forest or digging a big hole in the ground with explosives or yes. harmful chemicals. Students of the carbon water. cycle will tell you that 40% of uh, carbon in the atmosphere is sucked up by the sea, which seems to have a never-ending supply because of the life forms that are created inside it. And every one of these knows that things on the tilt and that things like krill are getting smaller and smaller habitats and that what's going to happen is that leads to uh, there being no larger sea animals which leads to a kind of stagnation of life inside the seas um, we have to be careful absolutely yes and it's weird because the small island state that triggered this does have a lot to gain from deep sea mining but it's also at quite a high risk of just disappearing entirely with regards to rising sea levels. So there's a weird medium that needs to be balanced with these companies in pursuing wealth due to their lack of land resources and exploiting the sea to the point of self-destruction, as it were. Isn't Nauru the, um, the, uh, a, a very small island itself? Yes, exactly. And wasn't it formed in the middle of... Is it the Pacific, basically because birds would land there and uh, basically it's made up of bird crap. And uh, and then some Australian came along and decided to mine the bird crap and, and, and now it's almost underwater. Is that that island? I know that that's definitely an island in the Pacific. I cannot confirm that that's immediately it's, the same. Really, yeah, well, okay. okay. The yeah, there's a moral there somewhere. Um, okay. Mm. Um all right. Well, um, so the so the conclusion is that uh, it's not really going to happen much yet. Is is that the conclusion? No, the conclusion, the conclusion is that we have two more years until it happens again, yeah. and companies that are outside of the UN can already, but the backlash would be immense. Hmm. But here's here's the rub: the biggest gold rush in economic history is about to happen around renewables, and it's going to really build up its momentum in the next five years. Um, maybe seven, eight. Uh, if we found alternative sources without going to the sea in that time frame, then the sea will be saved. Uh, you know, so we've got two years uh, guaranteed. Um, can we get seven 
um, and, and after which it won't be as profitable to go into the sea. I think that's that's the key that we see in all of our forecasting, that we know where the peaks and troughs are in the raw materials demand. And as a result, we can we know how long we've got a, we've got a last before um, allowing open mining in the sea. You raise a good point there in that the appetite for it has died down somewhat this year because of the relevant commodities kind of falling significantly. So cobalt in particular has fallen 70% off of its highs in November. And that's where a lot of the interest in deep sea mining was and where the advocates were for it. It's like, do you need to mine it with children? Do you mine it with robots underwater where they don't release a ton of carbon? And that was their pitch. But now that it's maybe 30,000 US dollars, it's not anywhere near as urgent because the cobalt market is in a surplus. Maybe that's what um, uh, Elon, Elon Musk will do with its humanoid robots, have them walk into the sea until they get to the bottom, pick up a, a bunch of cobalt and walk back out again, and it'll be a hyper-efficient method. Uh, yeah, it is, it's always a timing issue. you know. And it looks to me like the interest has gone away temporarily. Um, it depends how tight materials get and how expensive they get. Yes, exactly. Okay, I'll keep an eye on that. Andres, you, you've discovered a 40 gigawatt stockpile of solar modules in Europe. Where, where did you uncover this? In a shed in Amsterdam? <laughs> I do believe it probably is all, uh, all mostly in Amsterdam. Well, in, in the Netherlands. We mentioned back in our June 7th um, issue that, well, here's the number of imports from China to Europe, and it's 86.6 uh, gigawatts. And that was uh, imports last year, but last year they only installed 40. And so I was saying, well, they'll probably install 80, about 80 uh, gigawatts this year, because that's how many they imported. Uh, but then based on various industry associations and the statistics so far this year, it's only looking like that Europe will install 60 or 70. So that means you have a stockpile of about 20 gigawatts. Uh, and that was at the start of the year. And now, Restand has, has reported that there's 40 gigawatts stockpiled. And if you look at Europe's um, imports, they've only increased. Uh, they were there were 12 gigawatts imported just in April from China to Europe. Is uh, this not, not the, the distribution channels fattening their inventory because there's so much business? Restand didn't really venture an explanation. Well, and I, I've tried one. Yeah, uh, I, I've tried one, which is that there's such a desperate demand for solar in Europe that it becomes much more important to have the solar modules when it's time to install them than it is to worry about buying them too early. Uh, that must be what's going on. And the other thing is that the demand is very, very high, uh, but you've got uh, hiccups of trying to expand the, uh, the workforce. And in some cases, you've got uh, transmission constraints as well. But I think it's probably a workforce thing that's getting in the way here. Uh, you've got to remember here that this, this surplus has built up over the last two years, during which the polysilicon crisis has been in play. Therefore, these uh, modules that are out there are uh, were purchased, presumably, at a much higher rate than they are currently worth. Yeah, yeah. you look at the price range in that period, and it was, once you add the percentage or two for shipping, it was between $300 per kilowatt um, and $240 per kilowatt, which has now fallen to 190 So uh, rough figures. So these are what um, we call so spoiling assets. I would say that the total cost that's now accumulated is $18 billion. 
that has been bought a whole year before it's ready to be used. Well, rough, roughly speaking, maybe well, half a year. It depends what type of contract they're purchased on. If they're purchased hmm. on, a, you 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 pay for them when you get them, or or if they're if they're per purchased on that, we pay for them after we've sold them, um, or or some variant of that. There may there may be some leeway where both sides share in that loss. But if it's purely through the distribution chain, uh, if any of our listeners out there know the answer to this, we want to see who's making this huge loss because everyone in solar is making a huge profit. I was I did ask a, a British a small British installer company quite a long time ago. It must be six months ago or more now about this. I said, so how long do you have the modules lying around. And this is a company with only four megawatts of installs each year or something like that. And they said, oh, no, no time at all. We just buy it when we need it. It's a month or at most. And and so presumably it is not all of these individual small companies that do rooftop solar that is probably the more, 50% or more of the market. Uh, it must be some middlemen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a distribution chain and we don't cover it deeply enough. Um, and the price... Uh, that, that people are actually buying it for rooftop, especially, will be much higher than um, the price that it ships from China. So, I mean, therein lies the pr probably the difference. Um, and, and and most of the distribution channels will ignore, um, you know, the current price of modules and just um, put a margin on the price they bought them for. Uh, it will still be, uh, from now onwards, it will always be declining. Absolutely. Uh, but unless, the, unless there's competition in the distribution uh, channels, then there won't really be any any price. Uh, you know, the price will only fall in line with the supply price. I wonder if it's also an anticipation of... Uh, I mean, this is something that you would definitely do if you expected Europe to sanction or tariff Chinese modules, but that really isn't uh, imminent. Europe, I've seen no commentary about that. Yeah, Europe's not not aggressive enough to do that right now. I don't believe, and I think, think although, although you know, as we go on to some of the other stories I wanted to talk about today, we are seeing aggressive attempts to um, grow the industry, the native industry in both um, Europe and America. And if you go back to about twenty eighteen, there was a, a policy in place um, in Europe where it wasn't. Um, a tariff exactly but there was a minimum price rule which basically said if you sold solar modules you couldn't sell them cheaper than x and what that did was was protect one or two small german companies that were still in solar module manufacture and it gave something like a, a 30 percent price hike to all the chinese modules that were coming in <laughs> making them even richer and normally they were being subsidized by government so who was paying for that the taxpayer it was an insane decision but but it had been made three or four years early earlier just to protect the german industry yeah european rules are not made purely for germans oops oh yes they are sorry i forgot that so well, are we going to see the same situation over people like mayor Berger, who are um planning to build a two um gigawatt factory in europe and they're meant to build a two gigawatt factory in America at the same time. And and there now one of your short items talks about them um, um, accelerating the American end at the expense of the European end just to get their hands on that IRA money. 
Yes, by quite literally transferring uh, production equipment from Germany to, to Europe, um, from a German factory, not from a German you know, source of uh, equipment. Well, of course, Mayer Burger were, were um, a supplier of uh, equipment, and so they can, they're the supplier. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. Themselves. So they, can, they can make it eventually. But it's quite funny to see uh, such a literal uh, case of the IRA outweighing the European incentives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, the other short item I wanted to talk about today was was um, uh, Re- Revcor Energy and H2 Gemini planning a 20 gigawatt heterojunction cellar module uh, production capacity in the United States by 2025. 20 gigawatts. Yes, and I actually saw that reported as twenty gigawatts of heterojunction and perovskites, and but that you know you read you read it a bit more closely, and the perovskites is merely something they're researching for now. Um, twenty gigawatts, well, they're beginning with five gigawatts, so it is it is very big, but it's really a five gigawatt cell factory right now, and I do I do expect them to extend it to twenty gigawatts, um, and at that point I won't have any excuse to focus so obsessively on China because I always say, oh, this these Western efforts are silly. Why am I expected to care about a three gigawatt Western factory when there's a 30 gigawatt Chinese one? Yeah. Um, I can't say that anymore if they're going to be this big. Are they though? Are they? I mean, these are, in my view, these are all uh, preparing for a 2030 bankruptcy uh, bonanza um, <laughs> when they take the uh, subsidies away or, or like the car industry, they'll go, no, we can't take the subsidies away. Let's spend another trillion dollars on them. Um, and it become a permanently um, subsidised market in the United States. I mean, do you think that's sustainable? It all depends. Do you think that a $1 trillion um, overspend by an American government permanently every year, you know, every 10 years, is sustainable? Uh, Eventually, the American economy falls raggedly behind the Chinese economy. Uh, We'd start using the uh, run as the uh, uh, central... A global currency and the dollar um, starts to float. Not in my lifetime, I hope, but possible. <laughs> and the, you know, with protectionist policies, that's what you get. You get a protected environment which you can thrive in for a while, uh, and then global um, and then global economies overtake you. The other point on the IRA is that it's not just solar. It's solar. It's battery. It's wind. It's hydrogen. It's everything that will be underpinning energy in the US. Or, or stuff that won't be underpinning it, like carbon capture, which is just not going to work. Hmm. Uh, so, so it's wasted money uh, as well. And you'll, you'll see everyone getting a little bonus, all the oil companies getting a little bonus for carbon capture projects which fail. But in the end, there'll be another war on to, between the two, the two uh, parties in America to say which ones of these we keep. The ones that actually have spawned an industry or the ones that didn't. Or the ones that pay for you to keep them. Yeah. I mean, it's just... It's, Nuclear lobby. <laughs> I mean, we, we've we criticised the UK uh, uh, spend in nuclear. A, it's far too little. And B, why are you spending money on nuclear that can't be installed before 2035 when your house is on fire? I mean, literally, right now, that's that's... Apart from the UK, Europe is on fire. The UK, of course, is under a flood of rain to to make up for that. But um, the rest of Europe is 40 degrees and no one knows what to do about it. And there are fires everywhere. Why why not plan something for 2035? (laughs) Don't get me started on Rishi Sunak. What a moron. 
Um, okay. This has been us talking about energy, uh, getting carried away with politics as well. We'll be back next week. Um, that's all we've got time for today. It's based on our issue. Uh, you need to become a subscriber if you're interested in these topics. If you, if you go to www.rethinkresearch.biz, click on energy, we'll guide you through parting with your money. Thank you and goodbye.